okay, I need to talk to Jesus a moment. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name which is above every name, the name of Jesus. We've gathered for one reason only, to sit at your feet and to listen to you and to learn from you. So I pray that you'll take your word and break it and bless it and bestow it to each one according to our need for the glory of your name. And so, Lord, we simply say, speak, Lord, because your servants share up. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen. For the next... Uh, three weeks, I want to draw your attention to the first of the two most controversial scriptures in the book. One is found in Luke 24, verse 6, and the other is Genesis 1, verse 1. I want to talk about Genesis 1, verse 1. Bereshish bara Elohim et hashemayim va'et haaretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The gospel, the one in Luke, happens to be, the, the other controversial verse happens to be, he is not here. He is risen. Rationalists of every stripe struggle over both of these verses because they are so phenomenal, so magnificent, so majestic, so divine. But I want to talk about the first one, Genesis 1. The controversy with these two verses is basically a matter of faith. But it's not faith in faith. It's faith in the facts. And I want to share with you a very superficial overview of the opening verses of Genesis 1. And I'm very conscious that when I first came to Texas, I talked upon Genesis. In fact, I was in the book for almost two years. And I talked on it from the context of pictures in Genesis. And it's only in the last couple of months that I have begun to look back at the book of Genesis. When I told Ron that I was going to speak on Genesis 1, he said, oh, all you've got to do is listen to what you said. All those years ago, I said, I don't want to listen to what I said. I want to listen to what he says. And so the Lord dropped some things in my heart. And so I want to share it with you. It's not going to be deep. It's not going to be technical. But I hope it will stimulate you to understand we serve a great, big, wonderful God. Put him in any context. 
place him in any situation. And he looks glorious. And so I want us to, to look at these verses. Now it seems to me, and uh, I've not read this in a book, but it seems to me as I've been waiting before the Lord, just devouring these verses day and night, that to have a proper understanding of Genesis 1, 1 through 3, we have to deal or unravel with three things. I call them the triad of threes. We will not be able to have a full understanding or appreciation or comprehension of Genesis 1, 1 through 3 if we do not understand these triads. The first one, there are three diverse propositions. That's what I want to talk about tonight. Then there are three divine powers. Perhaps I'll talk about that next week. And then the following is the, div the three distinctive places. These three elements are found in the first three verses of the book of Genesis, chapters 1 through 3. Now, I must be honest with you, I approach this subject with fear and trembling. The fear is righteous and reverential. It's not a psychological disconnect. It is based upon the realization I am trying to handle something which is beyond human comprehension. For anyone who simply says to you, oh, I can explain Genesis 1, 1 through 3, they are lying. Because there are things in these verses which transcend not only our ability, but they go beyond the expression which is known in modern science, simply because it's the working of God. And as Ravi Zacharias is so fond of simply saying, what stirs your heart must make sense in your mind. But there are times in which what stirs in our heart is beyond the appreciation of our mind. And when you begin to look at Genesis chapter 1, we find ourselves in these kind of murky waters. We read it. We hear it said. We have an, uh, some kind of understanding of it. But the reality of the message goes beyond us. So look with me tonight at the first one, which I call the diverse propositions. It has been said, the grand simplicity of the account of creation is in perfect harmony with fact. The whole narrative is sober, definite, clear, and concrete. And this amazing event 
can be considered in one of three ways. And this is why I call it the, the triad of propositions. Number one, <clears throat> the narrative may be viewed as being factual. Number two, the narrative may be viewed as being figurative. Number three, the narrative may be viewed as being fallacious, which is basically what most scientists would acknowledge today. And so let me begin by looking at the very simple one. The narrative must be viewed as being factual. Let me say from the beginning, I believe the book. I accept the veracity of scripture from Genesis to the concordance. I even embrace maps. I believe the Bible. Do I understand it all? No, I don't. But I don't have to understand everything to believe it. But there is nothing in the book which contradicts or challenges my faith in the Lord Jesus the Christ. And so, look at the factual narrative with me. The Jewish sages have a delightful saying in which they postulate that God created the world from a plan and with a purpose. The plan in their context is the Torah. For from the Torah, you get the blueprint of creation. In their understanding, Torah, the first five books of the Bible, transcends time. Now, just in case you're a little nervous with that statement, please remember what John says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him, or without him, without anything made that was made in him his life, and the life of the light of men. Something like that. What John is saying is a typical Jewish statement. It's speaking of the excellence and the glory of the Torah. Its significance and meaning. Its purpose. But then they have another idea. Was to magnify the human potential so that humans might also discover the meaning and the goal of creation, which is to give glory to God and to grow into his likeness and to exhibit his image. This is the reason why God, when he made humans, he gave us the right of free will. If he'd wanted to make us like robots, he would have made us like, give me a name of a robot. I, I don't want that. 
Huh? Yeah, that, that sounds good. <laughs> Whatever that is. <coughs> but God didn't make us as robots. He gave us a free will. And with that free will, it was balanced upon two things. On the one side was Yatsahara, and on the other side was Yatsatov. Yatsahara is the inclination to do that which is wrong, or to do that which simply satisfies and pleases me. The other is Yatsatov the inclination and the desire to do that which is right and to do that which is righteous. And from the very beginning, God invested and implanted in the first human this idea of free will, knowing full well that he'd be confronted with this balance and counterbalance, the desire to do that which is pleasing himself or the desire to do that which is pleasing to God. And that's the battle that we face today. It's not only that which happened in the garden. It happens in your heart. And it certainly happens in my heart. In fact, the, the hymn writer said it this way, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's the challenge which Paul expresses in Romans chapter 7. There is this conflict between Yetzahara and Yetzatov. And that was implanted into the human at the very beginning so that the human might manifest his true potential to glorify God, to honor him, and to magnify him by simply saying, yes, Lord. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's difficult to say, yes, Lord. In fact, just like uh, Mary's grandchildren, One of the first words they learn to say is no. Because that's the word they hear mama and daddy say all the time. No. And so they catch on. They, they learn to say dada and no. And that is a part of weakness and challenge that takes place in our hearts and in our minds as we are given and presented the opportunity that we can either turn to the right or we can turn to the wrong. And so the, seeing we're going to look at this from a factual perspective, the Genesis account simply opens with a beautiful statement, Bereshish bara Elohim et hashimaim wa'it haharetz. In the beginning, created God, the heaven and the earth is the way that the literal text says it. Now the text is very simple in what it says. But its substance 
and meaning are profoundly complex. And so to begin to discover what is being said, I need to look at what is said, each word in particular. And so the opening word is Bereshish. Now, in the beginning, the opening statement underscores there was a beginning. Now, it is common thought among scientists today that matter has always existed. And so they are very, very adamant that there are certain things which we see which has always been. And that with the theory of uniformity, what we see has always been and the process has always been the same. There's never been any kind of a spectacular interruption. And so the theory of uniformity ought to be disproved very, very easily from history. But of course, if you have a bias for truth, you don't worry about the facts. You just stick to your philosophy, and you stick to your, to your theory. Now, Dr. Ross, the brilliant astrophysicist, has a fascinating video, and it describes the Big Bang. Now, Dr. Ross is a Bible-believing Christian. He believes in creation. He believes in the creator. He believes that creation shows the fingerwork of God. And he's got this fascinating uh, video in which he's talking, you know, in a very dramatic way. And so we come to one second before the Big Bang. And then he starts counting down in nanoseconds. We come to three nanoseconds. And everything is coalescing. And everything is composing and can be compressed together, something has to happen because the compression is so tight. Two nanoseconds, one nanoseconds, and suddenly the thing implodes. You know, I'm, I'm really saying, hallelujah. Except I don't believe the Big Bang. <clears throat> but I, I like the way he says it. But then he goes on, and this is where he underscores his Christian element. He said, from the moment of the Big Bang, God arranged every atom and every molecule to go in the right direction. So that every planet dropped into space, that even planet Earth was placed by God in its correct orbit at the correct time so that it could uh, exhibit life. And then he goes on to talk in those terms. I seem to say, you know, if that's the way it happened, God is great. To think that he could take all that explosive energy, all that mass, and matter, 
complacent in the right way of life. You know, I have difficulty putting chess pieces in the right place when, I'm, when I play, used to play chess. And yet, he put the stars in place. He put everything into its own orbit according to his will and for his glory. But there's a problem <clears throat> that Dr. Ross has not been able to answer. And the question is this. You talk about this stuff coalescing and compressing into a tighter, tighter, tighter ball until it implodes and boom. Where does the stuff come from? Well, of course, if you belong to the scientific school, he says, well, it's always been. And so what God really did was nothing more than bring out his vacuum cleaner. I just go, I saw all the stuff came together. And then as it came together, it, it got in a little bag and it got tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. And then boom. Doesn't that sound nice? I would like to see God's vacuum cleaner. The text says, in the beginning, Barashish is used in its absolute form. It is used like in Archaea, in John 1 1. A Maria sheet in Isaiah 46. For God says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is not yet. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. Prior to that initial beginning, there was nothing except the glorious presence of God. Nothing is a concept that we creatures of time who live in a limited environment, we can't even begin to comprehend. Nothing. Our limited capacities makes existence prior to creation unfathomable. When God says Bereshish, it is a divine and a distinctive punctuation point. It is unique. It is unparalleled. It's an indication that God has done something. But you know, there's a hint that's given in Scripture. The Apostle Paul, speaking by revelation, speaks of other divine punctuation marks. That even as creation in the beginning, God said, boom, 
that became a punctuation mark in the eon of what we call eternity. And Paul says, in the punctuation marks of eternity, except he doesn't call them punctuation marks, he calls them in the ages to come. He might manifest the exceeding riches of the idea and the picture behind that is a scientific one that when we move into eternity and that the church is gathered together around him, God was going to say, okay, let's do something new. Let me show you something. And there'll be a punctuation mark and he'll give us a revelation of himself which is so unbelievably great that our only response would be to do what the elders did around the throne is to bow down and say, holy, holy, holy. And that period of revelation will go on for a period, however long that punctuation mark is due to last. We don't know how long this present punctuation mark is going to last. But we do know it's going to it'll come to an end one day. But prior to that end, we're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. The text implies in the beginning, Bereshish, there was no sequence of time in creation. Nothing was created earlier and nothing was created later. In fact, the language given by Torah is that all the potential of everything that is and ever will be in our bubble called time came into being at that point of in the beginning. God created. Well, you see, creation, sorry, eternity is not just a long time. Eternity is timeless. Recently, Mary and I, we went to a restaurant for lunch. It took us forever to get seated. And after being seated, it took us forever to get our food. And then it took forever to get the bill. And there are times when, you know, that seemed like eternity. But there are times when we think eternity in those terms. It's a long time. And it's not. Eternity has nothing to do with time. Time is that which God does and follows a punctuation mark. When that punctuation mark is completed, we go back into eternity. To, ram in the ra to rest in the realm of God's grace. Am I making sense? Some of you folk look at me like Bob Terry used to say, like a carp look at a new gate. Eternity is the vast, unfathomable entity that encapsulates the bubble 
vehicle tongue. Eternity enwraps itself around the bubble. It is not the bubble, but the bubble, the bubble resides within it. The second word is ba'ara, created. And as I've said, that is the punctuation mark in the arena of what we call eternity. The Hebrew word bara is the first of three Hebrew verbs used in scripture. And the word literally means to produce, to bring into being. The second verb is yatsa, which simply means to form or to squeeze into a mold. We're told in the New Testament, don't let the world squeeze you into the mold, but be being conformed, not be squeezed by the world into its mold. The third verb is asa, and it simply means to fabricate, to make together, to build it up, to formulate. Yatsa and asa implies to make something or to form something which is already made or which is already in existence. Just like little kids love to play with Lego. They make all kinds of cute things and they brag about what they built. Look at this hand. That's me. I tell her the hand. <laughs> Look at this hand. And I have to simply say, ooh, ooh. Those two verbs are used of God and of man. It underscores what man can do, what man can make, the potential that God has invested into human beings. But when you look at the term, the verb bara, it is unique and it is used exclusively of the Lord. We do not have the ability to engage in bara. Only God does that. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, verses 5 through 7, all three of those verbs are used. In fact, verse 7 says it this way. Everyone who is called by, by my name, whom I created, bara, for my glory, whom I formed, yatsa, and whom I made, asa. The idea of bara means to bring something into being out of nothing. The technical term is creatio ex nihilo. Bringing something out of nothing. How does he do it? He alone is God. He alone has the ability to do it. And Genesis 1-1 clearly states the fact that Genesis 1-1 
and creation was a creative bara event. Look at the next word, Elohim, God. From its use, the term Elohim signifies the strong and mighty one. Though other names are given in the Pentateuch to this so-called supreme being, this term is used exclusively of his creative ability. God is God. God is great. Now I know that we like to sing the song, oh God is good, oh God is good. I, I, I can't sing that song. Don't like it. And so when the choir get it all worked up and singing and the band is going and everybody's saying, oh God, oh God is good. I simply saying, God is God. God is God. God is God to me. In that way, I am looking at God in the totality of his being. There is no conflict <clears throat> in the attributes of God. There's no confusion in the attributes of God. God is God. In his essence, in his being. Now the equivalent English word is that of deity. The one, the word deity in its originally, in its original English form, literally meant the object of awe and reverence. Whom no man has seen at any time in its unfolding, the mention of the name is to stir something deep within your heart. Let me ask you a question. When did you hear something that stirred something deep in your heart? Which all you could say was, oh, Steve Fry caught that when he wrote the song, Oh, the glory of your presence. We, your people, give you reverence. We have the, our world is losing the ability to have reverence. We are so used to the magic of technology and the brilliance of uh, photography. And we see in movies, people do things like, how did they do that? I long for the day when the church will come back and say to God, how did he do that? to be impressed with our Father, to be impressed with our God, not take him glibly or lightly, but understanding that he is the origin and the only motivating force 
He is the exclusive cause and source of all things. He brought all things into being. God. Lord Jesus, I ask you tonight that you restore to your church a sense of like the hymn writer we would be able to say I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me a sinner condemned and clean I stand in awe of you for the Lord hath done great things for us whereof we are glad that you were helpless and hopeless, lost and undone, but God. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that every individual in the house tonight will experience a new, a but God experience, which will cause reverence to rise, not merely at an emotional level, not merely at an intellectual level, but that something will come from the deeps of our beings, a deep chorus and a deep at the noise of your water spouts, that something will be drawn from us, which will indeed have the capacity to make us and transform us to be something a little more like you. Blessed be the name of the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and is to come. God forever blessed. Elohim. But then he goes on and uses the word Hashemayim. And I'm not going to talk much about the next two words because I'll deal with them a little later. Heaven. It's a primitive way to describe the upper regions. It's the way the Hebrew term expresses it and illustrates it. And if heaven represents the upper region, Haaretz, the earth, describes the lower region. One described that which is above us. The other described that which is around us and underneath us. The psalmist in Psalm 115 describes the purpose for God making planet Earth. He says, but Earth he has given to man. Did you get that? We know the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and they that dwell therein, but God has given the earth to humans to enjoy and to develop. Now, in your notes, you'll notice that I mentioned Bereshish, 
Barak, Elohim, Hashemaim, Haaretz. The five big words. But I overlooked the two little words. I wonder the reason why those two little words are overlooked is because there is no translation for them, except the second word has wa in front of it, which is translated and. But you've got those, those little words, eight. Now, let me be Jewish for a moment, okay? When Jewish scholars study the Hebrew text, they ponder over every letter. In fact, the ancient sages suggest that when Messiah comes, he will not only interpret each letter, he will also interpret the accents or the embellishments of the letters. He'll go further than that. He'll also give meaning to the spaces between the letters. Because every phase and facet of the word, not only that which is documented in ink, but that which is hidden in the space will be unraveled and unveiled by the Messiah. The Lord Jesus seemed to bear this. Stay with me a moment. Please stay with me a moment in this. Because I'm going to drop something into your mind. In Matthew chapter 5, the Lord Jesus simply said it this way. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy. I came to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth passed away, not one jot that the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, or one that's the embellishments, the little crowns that they place upon the top of certain letters. Not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Therefore, I want to know what hate stands for. But nobody else gives any attention to it. Yet it's in the book. Ah, I know. God needed filling to fill the book up. And so he put filling words. If you believe that, I've got some land in Louisiana. <coughs> which is for sale. Very, very cheap. 
can go fishing from it. <laughs> so, when you look at a little letters, it consists of two letters, A and T. Isn't that inspiring? A and T, spell that. If, put a, if you put an S in front, it means sat. If you put a C in front, it means cat. Ah, that's not what God's talking about. You see, the letter A is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The letter T, or Tau, is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, which is the Hebrew first letter, or Alpha in Greek, or A in English, indicates a gateway. It is used to describe an opening in the context of spiritual language, it represents a portal. A portal is an opening to the other world. A. Aleph. Tau implies completion. The end, it means to mark. It also has a, a vague reference to it being a dwelling place. Ooh, if you want to be spooky, Aleph, the portal, Tau, to a dwelling place in the arena of the spirit. Ooh, I can go down that road. But if I were to go down that road, they'd think I was nuts. But I go down the road in my own devotions. I meditate on going through the portal. As John could say, to be on a Patmos. And there was a portal. And the door opened. I heard a voice say, Aleph, the portal, which gives us access to the town, which represents the place. The hymn writer said it this way, there is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God. A place where sin cannot molest near to the heart of God. The Aleph and the Tau. Now, let, let me give, give you a, a piece of uh, useless information, okay? Tau. If you add the Dagesh to it, 
which is the dot that appears in the middle of the letter. If you add, it becomes hard. Like teaching Torah without the Dagesh. It's soft, like thought, or Bethesda. It becomes a soft sound. You might say, what has that to do with me? Nothing. I told you that was a piece of useless information. <laughs> ah, but now walk with me. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 44, verse 6, says it this way. This is what the Lord says. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the Aleph. I am the first. I am the Tau. I am the last. Apart from me, there is nothing. I am the beginning. And I am the completion. And everything else that exists comes under the control of the Aleph and the Tau. But that gave me an idea. Because I've heard somebody else say, I am the first. And I am the last. Haven't you heard somebody else say that? Listen to what John described from Revelation chapter 1. said, I heard a voice behind me. Somebody said, I am the Alpha. Oh, that, that's Greek. Let's put it into Hebrew. I am the Aleph. I am the Omega. Omega is the last word in the Greek, in the Greek alphabet. Let's bring it back into Hebrew. was and is and is to come the almighty and when I saw him I fell down on his feet as dead and he laid his hand right hand and he said to me don't be afraid I am the first that's our left and the last that's Tau I am he who lives I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, according to the law, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 5, it says, it's in a two or three witnesses 
that a matter is established. It's the mouth of two or three witnesses. Listen to what John begins to close the book of the Revelation in chapter 22, the last chapter. He says, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the Aleph and the Tau. I am the first and the last, the Aleph and the Tau. I am the beginning and the end, the Aleph and the Tau. On three occasions, the Lord is underscoring his identity, his reality, and his position in part as being God. So, what does eight mean? I'm going to let the Holy Spirit whisper that personal revelation to you. Or the Aleph and the Tau. The beginning and the ending. The first and the last. Because when you get a glimpse of that, Jesus will become more wonderful to you. That which is hidden in the opening verse of the Bible. Hidden in those untranslatable terms is the one who calls himself I am the first I am the last I am the beginning I am the ending I am he church I pray that the Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit will open our eyes to comprehend him in a way that we've never been able to comprehend him before. That's why I got a little stirred when we sung that song tonight. Who is this King of Glory? The wonderful and matchless one. You, O Lord, are worthy of my love, my praise, my heart, my life, 
every expression of energy. You alone deserve it. Because you were the one who gave it. And you are the one who will complete it. Isn't that an accident that Paul should say, being confident of this very thing, that he who hath begun a good work in me, you, will accomplish it until the day of Jesus Christ. We've looked at the factual evidence. Next week, I'll be a lot more disciplined. And we looked at the figurative and the fallacious evidence as documented of Genesis chapter 1. The Lord bless you tonight. Go and discover Jesus. Good night. Bye-bye.